Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to The Roy Green Show podcast. Though I am alone voicing these concerns publicly today, I can tell you that I'm not the only one who feels to varying degrees, as I do within our ranks. I remain hopeful that this call for more humanism, for more reason, and for more hope will be heard. Joel Lightbound, Liberal Member of Parliament from Quebec and the former, now former, Quebec caucus chair of uh, the Liberal Party. He may be a former member of the Liberal Party or a former member of the caucus pretty soon because we know what happens to individuals who challenge Mr. Trudeau. Think of Jody Wilson-Raybould, Jane Philpott, Bill Marnot, Selena Cesar-Chavan, and others. Out the door you go. There may have been a star one day, but you disagree with me, so bye-bye. That's the way it works with our Prime Minister, who still has to appear on this program. We've been trying to get him on since 2013. Actually, I gave up. I, I tried so many times. We, we had an exchange with the PMO where they seemed interested, and then I guess somebody said, oh, no, it's him. So that was it. We were done. We were out. Mr. Trudeau will never speak to me. I'd like him to. But I doubt it'll happen. So anyway, so Liberal MP Joel Lightbound uh, openly challenged his party leader and prime minister to stop his divisive and stigmatizing, quote-unquote, approach to COVID-19. Um, so what happens now? Oh, there's, there's, there's another little angle here. And we talked about this a bit yesterday and for a few seconds today. Former Bank of Canada Governor Mark Carney, who's a Liberal Party supporter, widely viewed as a potential successor to Justin Trudeau, uh, wrote a scathing op-ed in the Globe and Mail last week in which Mr. Carney, in my view, appears to directly challenge Mr. Trudeau's handling of the trucker convoy national protest issue. So what happens now? No one better to ask than two individuals who sat in the Liberal caucus in Parliament, one for 18 years and the other one as Justin Trudeau's seatmate. I mean, they were shoulder to shoulder. Dan McTagg, 18 years, member of the Liberal Party, under Jean Chrétien and Monsieur Paul Martin, and uh, Michelle Simpson, who was the uh, seatmate to Justin Trudeau. So how are you both? We're doing fine, I hope. <laughs> and oh, Michelle? <laughs> I'm, yeah, exactly, Dan. I'm doing quite well. Thank you. Okay. For some people, that's a tough question, not for you guys. <laughs> I've always said you shouldn't get stuck on hi. How are you? Um, so well, let me let me start with you, Michelle, because you you, you sat with the man. You he sat at, at, at your shoulder, and you told us that he would come into question period with a sheaf of papers. And initially, you thought it had to do with you know questions that he was going to be dealing with, but really they were just he wanted to show you articles that had been written about him. So how does he respond and react? to the fact that uh, that Mr. Lightbound uh, says what he said about him. Then he's joined by Eve Robillard and Anthony Housefather, both of them liberals, and they're also challenging Trudeau. How does Trudeau react to this, Michelle? Oh, honestly, like a petulant child. He, he would not react well to anything like that. When you think you're the smartest person in the room and you've got the gold-plated name, it's really tough to convince someone that there is more than one side to an issue. 
Okay, Dan, what's your response to that? How does Mr. Trudeau react? And and let me just give you part B of the question, which I'll then give to Michelle as well. Is he in trouble with his caucus? Well, I think, yeah, that answers the first question. Uh, I think if it's one person, it's easy to uh, excise that person and uh, set them out of the caucus, uh, as we saw in so many cases uh, with very smart, uh, very well-appointed liberal backbenchers who dared uh, speak truth uh, to his power, to his authoritarianism. Um, But with three, two, three, that suggests to me that the number could be fivefold, in which case... uh, not only does that represent for Mr. Trudeau a challenge to uh, his authority, it also suggests to me uh, that his minority government would be in very serious trouble if those, uh, you know, three to fifteen decided not to show up to a critical vote. I think uh, the days are over for Mr. Trudeau. Uh, he may not realize it; he's going to stay right to the bitter end. Uh, but the ship is definitely sinking as a result of this, and uh, this is the first time I've seen liberal backbenchers uh, in a very long time show spine the likes of which we saw from Judy Wilson-Raybould and, of course, uh, Jane Philpott, uh, and, of course, uh, Celia Chavez-Cesar. Uh, uh, so I, all in all, uh, I think uh, the uh, Mr. Trudeau's time as Prime Minister and leader of the party is now becoming very long in the tooth, and I think it's becoming apparent to everyone. Yeah, Selena Cesar-Chavez told, told us on this program that uh, when she told Trudeau that she wasn't going to run again in 2019, he started to shout at her. He became uh, verbally aggressive, and he did that twice. And she said, I don't need this. Uh, you know, she went and sat as an independent. I wonder, Michelle, and, and I'm, I'm not a conspiracy theorist, but is it possible that given the fact that we have three members of the Liberal Caucus all publicly criticizing Mr. Trudeau, maybe a fourth one, over Afghanistan, is it, is it possible that, uh, that the message is being delivered, not by these individuals necessarily, they're the messengers, but the message itself is being delivered by the liberal hierarchy, the liberal party hierarchy. I don't know that I can necessarily say that, but I think the uh, ball is starting to roll, and I think you're going to find, as Dan said, where there's two, three, you've got to know that there's five, six, seven individuals that aren't happy. Not everybody... Uh, even uh, during majority rule, liked Mr. Trudeau, his own caucus members. And he talks a good game about women. But now he's going to have to start throwing the men out of his caucus. I think he found it easy, you know, to get uh, to go after uh, Jody and Jane and... uh, Selena. Selena, sorry. (laughs) Uh, I think he found it easy because there is there's a part of him that is an alpha dog and a bit of a bully. We saw that on uh, during one question period early in his first mandate when he went running down the aisle and ended up elbowing a, a female NDP member um, and had to apologize for that particular behavior. What about uh, Dan? You've been you've been in Parliament when a Prime Minister winds up in trouble with his caucus, and that was Jean Chrétien. I mean, Chrétien won three majority governments. Here was a guy who understood power, understood how to wield power, understood how to manage it. He came up uh, following Pierre Trudeau and learned from from Pierre Trudeau. When a Prime Minister finds him or herself in difficulty with their own caucus, 
How difficult is it to do the job? Uh, well, impossible. And uh, what will happen, of course, next is if Mr. Trudeau's numbers don't improve, uh, you know, uh, there is really no one else to blame. He can't turn to the opposition and say it's their fault, much as he and his erstwhile ministers, uh, who used to be in our time, the sea line uh, now running the show. Uh, once they realize that the gig is up and that uh, his numbers are not going to improve, uh, it's only a matter of time. And I think, uh, you know, once the NDP can find its spine, uh, it, it should have the ability to work with other parties to, to bring them down, much in the way we saw, uh, you know, the constant erosion of our support. And I'm going to say from about 2002, right up until 2006, when we eventually succumbed as a government, uh, the it's only a matter of uh, when the Prime Minister makes yet another mistake. Because he's miscalculated, obviously, the... Uh, angst in this country, uh, referring to the folks that are in and protesting as a bunch of fringers and uh, radicals and unacceptable types. I think this guy has uh, run the gamut when it comes to divide and conquer. Sooner or later, everyone feels estranged by this man, and I think there's very few in the Liberal Party who actually are very comfortable in the way they were once were with Justin Trudeau, even for the for the most ardent of Trudeauites. Michelle, I spoke yesterday with uh, John Ibbotson who writes op-eds for the Globe and Mail, of course, columns. And he'd written a column a couple of days ago in which he said, Justin, I'm paraphrasing, Justin Trudeau is going to have to show that he can lead during a crisis. And what Mr. Ibbotson pointed out was that there really has been very little in the way of any legislative action from the Liberal government since it got into power. Wasn't much there before the 2021 September, the election last September, wasn't much going on then. And he just has been, and let me add my thoughts here, he has been absent without leave. He has really abdicated the responsibility to step forward and be prime minister. And what he's done as well in the descriptions he's given of people of whom he doesn't approve has been really rude and it's been beneath the office of prime minister of Canada. So given that, I don't know if you agree with me or not, but given that and, uh, and, and looking at, uh, and I'll ask you about this after the break, and looking at this uh, protest and the truckers convoy, the protests that are springing up, uh, across the country. What is your sense of the job the man is doing now? Uh, he's doing a horrible job. He, he, wanted to, he wanted to be the king. He wanted to be in charge, but he never really had the capability to lead. He loved all the uh, glitz and the glamour and rubbing elbows with all the who's who globally, but he, he really isn't the guy for the job to lead anything through any crisis, as far as I'm concerned. Well, did Trudeau have anything to do with the fact that you didn't run again? Well, he had everything to do with why I didn't run again. Uh, look, this is, a, this is a fellow that I had uh, a lot of difficulty with. Um, this is not a, a Democrat. Uh, he has uh, certain personal views that had to be reflected uh, no matter what. Uh, I disagree with him on energy, on life. I disagreed with him on foreign policy, on consular affairs. I disagreed with him in many respects. But what uh, I think it came down to was I, I just thought the guy was, uh, uh, you know, to be, uh, be, be very blunt, um, there's a certain side of him that, uh, you know, is, is extraordinarily odd, bizarre, weird. Uh, he could be your best friend one moment and hate your guts the next. It's it's. There's something not stable about this individual. And I've said this to you many times, and I, I, I'm certainly, I watch him and I see that it's there. There's no consistency with him. And it's not based on 
you know, what I've appreciated in his father and many leaders since then, they had something to offer. They had, you know, they had the dexterity to take the hits while at the same time, you know, projecting an image that I thought was important uh, and conciliatory and consensus building. This guy is anything but. And he really has brought the country to a position of political and economic despair on a level I've never seen. And so uh, that's, I knew this was going to happen. I'd been there for many years, saw this, uh, this, uh, this ship coming, and I realized uh, a lot of us are going to go down with it if we stay with him. So I'm happy not being there and certainly happy I'm not part of that cult. Michelle, would you, uh, would you agree with uh, Dan's assessment of, of Mr. Trudeau? Dan is spot on. Uh, he, he really went, he was touting women, oh, I'm going to have 50%. You know, to Selena's point, they were a tool. He had no more interest in forwarding that agenda other than the way it looked. And Dan wasn't one of them, but a few of them, you know, uh, the MPs at the time, the male members, when I sat there, there were a, a few of them that would, they'd go by his desk just so they could kiss his ring. So true. Yeah. So true. It was actually galling to see it. It was like uh, this fawning sort of adoration of uh, someone who uh, were his name, not last name, not Trudeau. And as I mentioned before, wasn't given to socks, sobbing and uh, selfies. No one would pay, give him uh, the time of day. No. He hasn't earned it, Roy. He never earned it. Uh, this is all about a kid who came in on uh, someone else's coattails, and now you've got him running your country. And I would argue, given uh, the work I do in energy and many other fields, he's running the country to the ground. And if you don't believe me, then ask uh, how we feel today versus how we felt in 2015. What do you, um, what do you think of his performance in the last three weeks Michelle, with the protest, the uh, truckers' convoy, um, what do you make of? Uh, I mean, what grade would you give the prime minister? Uh, you mean a grade? F yeah, minus. I'll give him a, really? F minus. Okay. Uh, simply because you know you hear him, and you know he he makes these statements. Uh, you've made your point. Now it's time to go home. Like everyone's going to pay attention to that. And he doesn't understand the role that the federal government played in all the anger that's out there. And some of it's, uh, I have to say, provincially motivated. There's anger there. People are just fed up. But so he hasn't, he, there was no way he, he was equipped to deal with this. Yeah. And he doesn't take advice in counsel particularly well, except for maybe the odd buddy who, um, you know, maybe he doesn't tell him the truth all the time. Dan, do you think um, that Justin Trudeau would be... Is he concerned that Pierre Polyev has announced his intention to run for leader of the Conservative Party? No, he's, uh, he thinks that the divide and conquer and uh, pinning him as a right-winger is going to work. And that's, that might work for a handful of people. But there's a lot more people right now saying uh, this uh, Trudeau guy's got tons of baggage. I mean, tons of baggage. And uh, the same old, you know, the same old... Uh, approach is not going to work this time. You can only demonize and vilify so many people, as this prime minister has done, as this man has done, before you finally meet your match. And and this time, what makes me most intrigued about if Mr. Polyev is to be the leader, I don't know that for a fact, but there will be no distinction uh, of saying, oh, the, the conservatives and liberals are pretty much aligned on many policy. I think the policy differences are going to be substantial. And it may very well come, and I hope this is the case, 
where a party like the Conservatives will distinguish themselves from the, you know, the uh, garden variety liberal, uh, you know, mealy mouth, milk toast, new Democrats and Greens and Bloc, because they're all the same on these other issues, uh, with some variation here and there when it comes to sprinkling money we don't have. If the Conservatives can do what I think they did earlier this week without much fanfare and uh, take the thir- the uh, carbon tax and carbon regulations, line them up on the 30-yard line and punt them right through the end zone, I think the Conservatives are going to win. Let's talk about this situation. We understand that at the Ambassador Bridge uh, in Windsor, things are opening up, but there's not ready yet to say that uh, it's normal traffic flow. Um, On the way to Niagara in Ontario, the Queen Elizabeth Way, there's a blockage there, people on the highway. So it continues in various parts of the country, Saskatoon. There's also a protest underway, according to Global News. So the security situation today, as semi-trucks remain blocking streets in Ottawa, um, remains an issue. But the police have an integrated police command center now in Ottawa, which may, I suppose, give them more opportunity to work in a in a in a, a manner where they're all uh, coordinated in what they're doing. It's actually something that I would have thought they would have done a long time ago, but probably the cops were waiting for some level of government leadership, which has been sadly absent. David Perry is the founder and CEO of Investigative Solutions Network. He's a former Toronto police detective sergeant and homicide investigator. Mr. Perry has been kind enough to give us quite a bit of his time over the last number of weeks. Dave, thank you very much again for coming on the program. And we have Bill Blair saying the federal government's considering engaging the Emergency Measures Act. What are your thoughts? Yeah, I heard that. And I was also interested to hear his words about the police have to do their job. So, you know, I think that's a sense of frustration from the government side. Of course, it's coming from a man who led you know, the largest municipal police service in Canada. So they're not words that are just falling from somebody with lack of experience. Um, it's it's a little bit frightening that that's where we're at, but I certainly don't disagree that we're at the point now where there's no negotiating our way out of what hap- what's happening in Ottawa. I don't think the police are going to be able to convince these protesters to go home. And, uh, you know, it's pretty clear from the, Prime Minister on down uh, and listening to the citizens of Canada, they want this thing to end. So there will be some kind of a police action coming up soon. And uh, what that exactly looks like, nobody knows, but we saw the level of force that was required just to take care of things at the Ambassador Bridge. And they have something that's a hundred times in magnitude and size that's happening in Ottawa. So it's going to be very interesting. Do you have any idea of possible timing for any police action, if it's in fact going to go forward, and I imagine if the federal government says they're considering the Emergency Measures Act, they've already made the decision. That would be my guess. Uh, first of all, your thoughts on that, and how quickly would you expect police to move forward with their concentrated and integrated action? Well, I, I agree with you. If they're talking about it, it's probably already happening. And, uh, you know, once it happens, I, I think there's going to be a lot of pressure on the police and and this integrated uh, command post to, you know, come up with a, a plan that they think is going to work and execute on the plan and start getting people out of there, getting these trucks and all of these protesters out of there. It's a massive undertaking. I mean, it can't it can't be underspoken, right? The the volume of of work, the potential for extreme violence against the police, you know, up to and including lethal force in resistance by the protesters is real. 
So we're not going to go in there blindly. We're certainly not going to go in there to lose. You know, if the police have to, you know, enforce the laws and 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 the decision from our government, federal, provincial, municipal, is to get these people out of there. There has to be a very robust plan. There has to be sufficient resources to make sure that as best we can, we protect officer safety, the safety of the citizens. And you know what? Here's the thing. Um, police officers don't want to go in and use force on Canadian citizens. You know, if you get somebody that's robbed a bag and they've injured tellers and things like that, the police officer chasing that person, uh, by law and by effort, they're going to use whatever force is necessary to get that person under control. But that's one person. This is a totally different story. This is You're going in against your citizens. Whether you agree with their right-winged views or not, these are still Canadian citizens. So the, the plan is to go in and use as little force as possible to achieve the end game, which is to clear the blockade and get them out of there. But I don't see that as being something that I'm very hopeful in this particular situation. I think there's going to be extreme resistance. I think there's going to be violence. And we've all seen it before. Use of force by our police or our military is never pretty. It's not going to look good. It's not going to feel good. The only thing I can say is that the pendulum seems to have swung in quite a direction compared to where we were just last year where a lot of people were talking about defunding the police and today we're talking about adding to the police uh, enacting emergency powers and having the police do their job so if there's a skirmish if there's a use of force by the police it'll be interesting to see how you know the Canadian public comes down on this and how they view what those actions were yeah there are families that are participating in the uh, in the protest they you know they go to go to see what's going on and then they they get in, involved and engaged so what do you do about your women and children and dads and exactly. people just just walking the streets and just seeing what's happening and maybe taking sides while they're there well i think there's been a lot of um you know sort of requests and negotiations for people to leave and and so on i think what's going to happen next is there's going to be a warning like that, that that happened at the Ambassador Bridge. People are going to be warned that the police are coming, and people are going to be warned that the police are going to arrest you, they're going to charge you, they're going to impound your vehicles, and, and shortly after that warning, you'll see an, uh, an escalation of uh, you know the activity of the police, and at, at some point, they're going to do just like they did uh, at the Ambassador Bridge. But I'm just saying from, from my perspective, they need I don't know, 20, 30 times the, the resources, uh, maybe even more, to do that is successfully in Ottawa with you know minimal impact, minimal injuries to the police and to the protesters and so on. It, you, you need an extraordinary force to go in there to take this thing uh, apart and dismantle it. Yeah, how do you prepare for that, Dave? Lots of planning. Um, you know, there there will there is and and will be minute by minute changes to the plans. Uh, I suspect, of course, you're going to pick your opportunity, and we've seen that over the weeks. That the weekend is the is the peak point where, you know, the protest seems to grow, and you've got a lot of people coming into town and and supporting. So you're going to pick a time when there's the the, the least amount of people, and and therefore gives you the best odds of you know being able to have some resemblance of control. And and that's the thing I'm I'm really afraid of, and I, and I don't use that word loosely. I'm afraid of the ability of the police to, to maintain control once they start their action. And that, that's not a negative about the police. It's just the fact 
that they've never had to face this kind of thing in Canada before, something of this size. And if it turns violent, it's going to be it's going to be really interesting. And and, and I'm worried for the safety of, of the police officers involved. And we're worried about the safety of the public. And you know what? I'm, I'm worried uh, that some of these uh, protesters might be motivated to, to use extreme force. And, and if that's the case, it's, it's going to be a very dangerous uh, situation. Are we going to lose police officers in significant numbers? That's two words, in significant numbers, over the current situation. I spoke yesterday with uh, Tom Stamatakis, the president of the Canadian Police Association, and the feeling I had from Tom, and uh, it's just my feeling, and other police officers, former police officers, I've spoken with, is that they're they're not they're not happy with the way they're perceived, or they just feel that when I get to my retirement age, I'm gone. Do you think that we we're going to lose police officers over what's been going on and what may happen? Yeah, possibly. You know, the profession has changed. Uh, I'm giving away my age a little bit here, but I've been around policing since just out of high school, so some 45 years, and I know I know the business inside and out, and I'm still engaged these days, even in my private work. But I can tell you that, you know, the the morale in policing is, has shifted significantly over the years, and and a lot of it has to do just with the you know constant complaining about police and the the constant erosion of you know their powers to do their actually do their jobs and. And so on. And here we are today um, with, you know, a, a police service across the country that probably doesn't have uh, the morale that it should. And they're being asked and, and demanded to do something that's extreme, you know, put their safety in, in jeopardy and, uh, and uh, of course, face all the criticism, good or bad, that's going to come afterwards. So it's a, it's a very tough job, it's a very tough time to be a police officer. All of my colleagues use those words all the time. So it's Super Bowl day, and uh, Super Bowl, I always get the Roman numerals wrong. I think it's LVI, Super Bowl 56. And at the same time, the Beijing 22 Olympic Games are underway. So we're going to do now something I've been looking forward to, and that is talk to a Canadian father and son combination of professional football stars. And uh, the son is also a Winter Olympics. What am I doing here? It's Neil and Jesse Lumsden. Why can't I just say that? That's a well, big build up. Huh? Well, just go ahead and say it then. Okay. How are you? <laughs> I'm great. It's my good friend, Neil Lumsden. We were having coffee the other morning, and we were talking about uh, sports and talking about football and talking about the Olympics, and then we started talking about Jesse, and uh, we had this brilliant idea, or at least I think I had the brilliant idea, to have you guys both on the show. Jesse, how are you? I'm great, Ray. How are you doing? Great. Terrific. Good to talk to you. Yeah, you do. So uh, let me just also say, so we're going to be talking sports. We'll talk football and Olympics. And uh, Mr. Lumsden Sr. is also entering the political arena, going to run as a progressive conservative uh, candidate in the riding of Stony Creek, just outside uh, Hamilton. Do you want to just give me 10 seconds why you, why, why are you doing that? Well, Hamilton East Stony Creek, um, specifically. I, you know, it, it, there are a number of reasons, but... I think what comes it comes down to for me is uh, I love challenges, always have from back in high school to whether it's work or whether it's football and it's or the business of football. And I thought that it came down to me thinking I'm tired of people being so negative. Lots of good things can happen. 
I've learned that from business. I've learned that from sport when you can bring some people together and, and, and start getting people thinking in the right way versus just being critical. And that's what started me thinking about it. And then I was lucky enough to have them uh, offer me the opportunity. So uh, that in 35 seconds or less is the reason. Yeah, you've always accomplished uh, greatly three Grey Cups uh, in, in Edmonton as a player, one in Hamilton as general manager, and in the Canadian, or at least, the, yeah, the Canadian Football Hall of Fame. I always want to say Canadian Football League Hall of Fame, but the CFL, the Canadian Football Hall of Fame. There, I did it again. Uh, and uh, so let's talk a little bit of football. And, and, Jesse, before we do that, we're watching the, the Olympics, the Winter Olympics take place. You participated in the Olympics as a bobsledder after your football career. Fourth place. I thought you guys were going to get a medal for sure, but you won a world championship. What's it like to be part of an Olympic environment? Uh, Competition-wise or just the whole sort of spectacle? Just the whole experience. And, yeah, sure, the competition as well. Well, I imagine it's very different this time around, but um, Vancouver was very different than Sochi than it was very different from Pyeongchang. So it's, I think um, Vancouver I, set the bar for me, and, you know, I don't want to call it a regret, but I came into the sport about nine months before the Vancouver Olympics, and it was very sort of green behind the ears, you know, with all the buildup. I was excited as a fan, but... Um, it would have been nice to have had that anticipation leading into the games for a couple of years, uh, just because it, it was such an amazing spectacle. Um, I found that when the team went to Sochi, though, the team actually bonded more cross-sport because in Vancouver, I think most Canadian families were fortunate enough to get there. So you're spending a lot more time with the people that were coming to support you when you did have the downtime as opposed to being in Russia or Pyeongchang where it's, you're really relying on not relying on, but leaning on and spending more and more time with different athletes from different sports and getting to know each other and spending time in the lounges and, and really bonding over that experience. So, yeah. you know, a couple different unique scenarios from, from each, but competition, um, yeah, Vancouver was wild. Sochi and Pyeongchang were felt more like just World Cups because it wasn't as big of a spectacle. There weren't as many people there. I should just also say that uh, Jesse Lumsden, CFL All-Star, first-round draft choice of the Hamilton Tiger Cats, also drafted by the Seattle Seahawks of the NFL, and a football career was cut short by injuries, became a Canadian Olympic and world champion bobsledder, winning gold in the world championships in 2012, and as I said, finishing fourth in the Olympic Games. Whatever made you decide to become a bobsledder? I mean, they, I mean I've been on a bobsled once in my life. Yeah. Scariest, <laughs> scariest experience ever. <laughs> what made you volunteer? Uh, I was actually, you know, it's funny. It's, I was at my parents' place and I was in our parents' kitchen and my dad was there and I got off the phone with the high performance director at the time, Matt Hindle, and he invited me out. And this was in, this would have been February, January, February of 09, January of 09. And I was going, uh, yeah, and I was going to go into free agency and, uh, and they invited me out for a camp. They had extra funding because it was a home game. They were looking for some athletes, you know, that could translate into the sport quickly to add some more firepower to the team going into that Olympic season. And I kind of just brushed it aside. And it was actually dad that said, well, go do the two weeks. Go spend some time with other athletes. You know, go see what it's all about. Um, get your mind off football. Train in a different environment and see what happens. So uh, he was a big part of it. And, and, I was just very much coming off after two shoulder shoulder season-ending injuries and surgeries, like really just focused on football. But 
it was actually, yeah, it was, it was a great call, no doubt, uh, to, to go and, and just take a peek and fell in love with it very quickly and fell in love with the opportunity of like being able to represent Canada, which you don't get to do in football. It's just under two minutes of absolute terror. No, it's amazing. No, it's not. Well, it depends who's driving. <laughs> who's driving. No, it's not. There's a difference between Jesse Lumsden and Roy Green. <laughs> I say it's terror. He says, no, it's not. Neil, how did you feel when you're watching Jesse uh, in, the, in the bobsled? Because there was that incident in uh, in Vancouver, right? Um, the incident as in the uh, Georgian loser? Yeah, exactly, yeah. Yeah, yeah, sorry. Yeah, we we got there the day before, or the, just the day after that uh, terrible accident happened. And it, it's it's funny, it didn't, um, I mean, I knew going in based on talking to Jess that the Whistler track was the fastest on the planet, and uh, we had talked about certain areas that uh, Jesse explained to me where the, the, you know, it was more violent going through specific turns, whether it's four, five, and six, and whatever. But it never, never occurred to me, um, even after the accident, that that would happen to them, just based on, uh, I think, the, the type of sliding a bobsled does versus a loser. So, um, yeah, it didn't even cross my mind. I mean, I, I, I always worried because I have seen them flip and crash in Sochi. And it was uh, one of the worst times for me uh, in any my career or his career or Kristen's career. It didn't matter. It was one of the worst. But not a bit surprised that he bounced back and uh, was ready to race the next day. So, um but that was, it's hard to watch. I mean, especially when you know that they're going, you know, whatever, an 85 miles an hour in this massive sled. So it, uh, it's a pretty violent, as you know, Roy, it's a pretty violent ride. Yeah. And, and we joked about it. And I think even Jesse said it to me after the first time he we went down. He said, Dad, that, you know, when they go down the first time, they get a, either get out of the sled at the bottom and puke, or they say, hey, let's do this again. <laughs> and he was a let's do this again guy. Yeah, I was the I was the former, not the latter. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, got, I talked myself into doing it in Lake Placid, and man, oh man, it's it's a scary well, Lake, Lake experience. Lake Placid, Roy, is no like Lake. I'll tell you right now, Lake Placid is probably one of the roughest tracks on on the circuit. So even a, even with a smooth ride in Lake Placid, you're coming out a little squirrely for sure. What's it like to be in a locker room? before the game so the team's there the coaches are there the fans aren't there nobody's asking you questions what's that experience like neil in the locker room um well i'm going to preface that by saying and i just thought of it i'll tell you what would have been the best backfield in the history of the game would have been me at fullback and jesse at tailback i'm just throwing that out there just so you know who could Um, argue yeah what is it like in you know i was um the, the most nervous I have excited, anxious I've been was actually my first Western final in Edmonton. And everything after that in, in big games for me seemed very natural and fluid. And there was a, a, an enormous amount of confidence with the team that I played with and on, along with our coaches. So even the, you know, they, they talk about the Great Cup of Montreal where we were down 19 or 20 or whatever the heck it was to the Ottawa Rough Riders at the time. And J.C. Watts was a quarterback and they had some great players. And it, there, again, there was, a, there was this calm and, 
an understanding. I, you know, it's a confidence thing, not only in your teammates, but um, in your coaches and in yourself, thinking that I, we, I can't be beat, and we won't be. And that's a little bit of what I see in Joe Burrow. It's a lot of what I see in some other players on the Rams. And those are qualities that um, come from the environment you're in and sort of reinforces what you're born naturally with. Okay. Jesse, uh, you agree with your dad? And, and what's the difference, if there is a difference, between an NFL team and a CFL team when it comes to preparing for a championship? I don't know. I made the playoffs once. <laughs> okay, so but you, yeah, okay, but tell you. But well, what's it imagine. like to be? What's the difference between an NFL team and and a CFL team, and and just getting ready for for games? I think it's you know, if you're on a team that is has players that are passionate about winning and 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 want to win and want to be the best, it's going to be the same. You're going to have your, you're always going to have your. Um, Traditions. You're always going to have your little nuances, uh, your little routine, and I think routine is extremely important in sport. And um, generally, it's whether it's the Super Bowl or the first game of the season, that routine really doesn't change all that much. I remember one of the big things, like in Hamilton, when I was playing with the Tie Cats, um, it didn't matter what music was on before the game started. Um, Adriano Belli would like literally take a CD out of the CD player and throw it across the room and put on uh, In the Air Tonight by Phil Collins. It was the last song that went on before a game started. Uh, and that never changed. Like, it was, so I, I always thought that was kind of funny. But um, it's, people prepare differently. And I think one of the biggest things you need to learn as a teammate is that people prepare differently. And people aren't going to be the same as you. Some guys are going to be lighthearted and and joking around, some guys are going to have their headphones on and not going to say a word. Uh, but if you have the right chemistry, you know that as soon as you step out onto the field, that everybody's everybody's moving in the same direction under the, on the same game plan and expecting the same result. So in about two hours, both the Bengals and uh, the Rams are going to be stepping on the field. Uh, who do you like? Let's start with you, Jesse. Who do you like and why? I haven't been watching a lot of football this year. Uh, be, just to be straight up honest with you, I I like the Bengals because of the story behind it. Um, I think the Rams also have a really unique story. You know, very young head coach, proven to be able to be very successful. Um, but the fact that the Bengals have went from essentially zero to heroes in such a short period of time, um, and they like my dad said, like you know, Joe Burrow, he's carrying a lot of swagger with him, uh, and that is. If, if you can't get him out of that, it's, he can be very, very tough to beat. Yeah, I, I like uh, I like the Bengals in this game. And, and, Neil, when you look at what they've done, they went into Tennessee, they went into Kansas City, they were way behind to the Chiefs, and yet they come back and they win in overtime. I think this is a team of destiny, even though the Rams are really good. And what do, what do you think? Who do you like? You're going to say Rams. Um, I'm going to say that one of the things that has impressed me about the Bengals is how they made adjustments last week on defense against, or two weeks ago against Kansas City. That, that successful formula that Kansas City had going in the first half, the Bengals made adjustments by changing their coverage patterns and doing some things that they didn't do that really took 
the Kansas the Chiefs and made them step back. And while they were getting while they were stepping back, uh, Joe Burrow continued to do and make big plays. I mean, can you imagine a quarterback getting sacked nine times in a game and still winning? I mean, that's it's almost crazy. You talk about a rough ride in the bobsleigh. Joe Burrow had to be packed in ice probably for four or five days afterwards. So that's that. That would be that to me is problematic. And I think to be able to do that, the Bengals have to also be able to run the football. But when it comes down to it, you know, they uh, I've played on a lot of good teams in my career from high school to college to pro. And if you haven't got a defense, you don't win. And I put the the check mark beside the Rams defense for the, the game this evening. And that could be the difference. Yeah. They've got a guy named Donald to start up yeah, right, right on the defensive line. Oh, so they got, they got guys up front that look like they haven't been fed in five days. And there's just a hunk of meat back there. I mean, they are creative, yeah. quick, powerful, and they can cover. So, I mean, you know, chase on the, on the, the Bengals side and Cooper cup, on the Rams side, uh, watching them will be a lot of fun too, and see how they take them, try to take them out of the game. Okay, a couple of seconds from each of you. Do you think uh, Tom Brady's going to come back, Jesse? What do you think? I hope not. I think if you you, you kind of you make a decision, and I think it sounded like he was making the decision for the right reasons and wanted to focus on other things. So, um, yeah, I, I hope he does it because okay, this Neil. is where it becomes this a very slippery slope. Yeah, Neil, what do you think? Uh, he, people will remember him as being, if, if it's his last game that people want to look at, he was almost brought them back from the brink or to the brink of winning that game. I think his family now is the most important thing to him. And I don't think he plays again. The leadership race that has actually begun because Pierre Polyev announced his declaration or announced that he is running for Prime Minister of Canada. First, you've got to become the leader of the party. But he's made that announcement. So what's it like in a leadership race for a political party, federally, particularly the Conservative Party? Uh, Rick Peterson is an Edmonton venture capitalist who twice contested the Conservative Party leadership and ran against and lost to Andrew Scheer in 2017. Mr. Peterson has been on this program. Uh, We talked about uh, an initiative that he started called Boots and Suits that had to do with pipeline legislation that Mr. Tudor's government brought in. How are you, Rick? Can you hear me, Rick? Yeah. Hi, Roy. Pleasure to be here again. Yeah, good to have you with us. You know, technology is wonderful until it isn't. (laughs) No kidding. How many times have we all said that? So you're not running for the Conservative Party leadership this time. Why not? And let's start with that. Why not? Well, it's a uh, it's a big commitment, Roy. I had um, two different opportunities where things came together for a run. The uh, focus for me this year will be to try to support and encourage somebody uh, to come up and step up and run and represent uh, those values that that I think are important in the party, and that's uh, big vision, big ideas, and a uh, you know progressive, small-c, conservative approach. So we do know that Pierre Polyev has announced his intention to seek the leadership, has made that very clear online, did that last weekend. And uh, many people feel that it's going to be essentially a coronation for Mr. Polyev. You don't share that view. No, I don't, Roy. Uh, Pierre is an extremely talented uh, politician. Make no mistake about that he's been 
uh, on Parliament Hill for, what, 14 years. And he's an excellent communicator. Uh, he's fluently bilingual, and he's very popular with uh, a segment of the base. But to win the leadership, Roy, the way that the rules are likely going to come out, which would be similar to the two previous campaigns, is uh, somebody has to win 50% plus one of the points. And I just don't see Pierre or anybody uh, coming out of the gates getting that 51% on the first round, uh, Roy. So you have to look at the party. You have to look at the different areas of support. And uh, he's got a long ways to go. We'll see who uh, who ends up running. But it's far from a done deal for, um, for Pierre. He is going to be favored coming out of the blocks. But we'll see what happens. So what is it like to be engaged and involved in the leadership chase for a major political party that has a good opportunity to form a federal government. Eventually it's going to happen. Eventually the Liberals will be defeated. And more than likely it'll be the Conservatives who replace them. At least that's the dynamic now. What's it like to be involved in the race? And you did it. You did it twice. You're perfectly bilingual. You had a lot of national attention. Rick, what's the experience like when you come out at the other end? different experiences, Roy, but in both cases, a tremendous sense of gratitude from uh, for being able to have done that. There is no better way to really understand Canadians from going coast to coast, and it's not so much what you say as the candidate, Roy, but what's fascinating is to listen, is to listen to members, listen to Canadians, and it's a, it's a humbling experience. It's, um, it's a marathon, Roy, right? A leadership race, in 2017, I think we were out there for eight or nine months. In 2020, we got cut short because of COVID. So that experience was a little bit different. But it is a humbling experience and a gratifying experience to connect with Canadians at that level and listen to them, hear them, and get a real feel for what are their priorities. So when we watch, and many people will watch the last few hours pay attention during the campaign, of course, for the leadership. But when it comes to watching it on television, we watch mm-hmm. the last few hours because you're going to find out who's going to lead the party. And it's puzzling. It's confusing. You have the pa- the favorites, but suddenly it's not the favorite. It's somebody who was in fourth place or sixth place a couple of ballots ago. What's the, what goes on between the time that, you know, somebody's in fourth or fifth or sixth and then suddenly they're, they're the leader? What kind of negotiations happen? Well, there are there are there are no negotiations, Roy. I mean, uh, members mark their ballots in the order of their preferred candidates: one, two, three, four, five, all the way down. And the results that you see on the TV, they're already calculated, they're already counted, and the party just uh, extends probably the interest by releasing them over a period of time. But the votes are all done ahead of time, either by mail or maybe by online, and um, it's all done. By the time you turn your TV on, it's done, and there is no negotiation. This isn't like the the old days, Roy, of the 80s or the 90s where we had the delegated conventions, is it? No, it isn't, because you know, you'd have a candidate walk over to another candidate and sit with that candidate and basically tell his or her delegates, you now come with me and you vote for this person. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Right. And you know what, Roy, I think it's more, it's actually more democratic right now because to go to a convention, you would have had to take the time away from your work or your family and a ton of fun. But as it is right now, whether you're in Newfoundland, Labrador, or whether you're on Vancouver Island, 
you don't have to travel. You can vote uh, online, and I think it's an excellent format. I think it's it's very well done, and I think it's probably the most democratic way to elect a leader. So what the Conservatives want, clearly, is to win an election. The last one was 2011, um, Stephen Harper. And how much is driven by that particular need to win? You know, Andrew Scheer, Aaron O'Toole weren't able to do it. You know, you had Peter McKay come out and say, he missed the net on the breakaway. I made life difficult for myself to get interviews with these people because I said it wasn't a hockey net, it was a soccer net. But what, you know, doesn't the party look at somebody like Polyev and say, yeah, he could really handle himself in a debate. He's got the personality. He's got the national uh, recognition. Does that kind of thinking overcome policy issues? Leadership debates are a great forum and venue for uh, vision, Roy. And, and, you know, I think you bring an excellent point up because at this stage now, you know, as much as, as conservatives uh, don't like Justin Trudeau, he's beat three consecutive conservative leaders. That's right, yes. He is a strong campaigner, and despite all the setbacks that he had in the last campaign with We and We Charity and Blackface, we know them all, he still beat he still be three leaders. So this this campaign coming up, I, I, I think, is an awesome opportunity to finally bring forth ideas and a candidate who's got a big picture. Like, what counts for Canadians? You hear it on your show, right? A lot of what happens for a debate inside not just the Conservative Party, but any political party, is basically um, fine debates on small points, which a number of people are extremely passionate about but may not resonate with the general public. So to your point, Roy, in this election campaign coming up, leadership, I, I'm hoping somebody comes up with a big vision on big ideas. Um, you do have to make sure you expand the membership base, you sell memberships, and you expand the base of the party. But I, you know, saying that Justin Trudeau is bad is not good enough. Okay. It is not good enough. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend.